Building 21 presents a very special podcast episode entitled Prolegomena for the Possibility of Any Radical Future. It is time for the prelude. The prelude is about dimensions, organisms, affordances, and horse dung in New York City. What is the future? Is it a place? A process? A story? A concept? A movement? An aesthetic? Maybe we can start with this. Ask a physicist and they might make reference to dimensions. If you're not sure what a dimension is, let's try something out. We're going to begin the story with an experiment. Take a straw or pencil or any other rod-like device and hold it in your hand. Now, place another straw and hold it so that it is at a right angle to the first straw. It should look like an L. Now, add a third straw such that it does a right angle to both straws in the L shape you just made. Your hands are getting pretty full by now, but let's try one last step. Let's add one final straw and repeat the process. Add a fourth straw such that it is at a right angle to all three straws in your hand. By now you're probably discovering the task is impossible. Now, we don't, of course, live in a literally three-dimensional space. But we cannot add that fourth straw in the same way we can't divide an apple by zero or sail south-north. We live in a three-dimensional world in the sense that we can't step out of these three dimensions, which are always located in a fourth, time. Any event in reality can be very usefully located using three spatial dimensions, a where, and a fourth dimension, a when. But what does this have to do with the future? Well... We're not physicists. I'm not anyway. But I think we learn a lot from that little metaphor. Let's think about it. The future is kind of like this three-dimensional analogy. That is, we don't literally live in it. But without allowing it to structure our experience, navigating the world would be quite difficult. When I walk into a room, I imagine what I might be doing in that room. I imagine what I might do after I exit the room and so on. In this sense, the future is always in us. Can we imagine what life would be like if I didn't imagine the tiny future of water staying in a mug as I pour it? In the 1960s, American psychologist James J. Gibson would call these tiny futures affordances. An affordance is a possible interaction between you and something in your environment. It's sort of like something that you can do with something. A cup affords drinking, for example, and a cliff affords falling, and a river affords both drinking and drowning. His idea was very subtle. 
He thought, at least in the terms we're using here, that the little futures we find in things made things the things they are for us. By discovering we can eat an apple, for example, the little future of eating is imbued into the red fruit we can pick off trees. And if that future of eating hadn't been found, we wouldn't know apples as, well, apples. Now, of course, you can do virtually anything with an apple, which means that the little future of eating isn't necessary in any absolute sense. Just like there's an infinite number of ways to conceptualize space other than on the x, y, and z axes in time t, some ways are just more useful than others. And under Gibson's idea, this is sort of how objects are generated. They're a function of useful interactions between us and aspects of our environment. Right. So, let's say you're an organism. Of course, there's an infinite number of ways you could interact with your environment. You could eat rocks or walk in your hands or maybe walk in your tentacles. The point is that there's a limited number of ways you can interact with your environment that are adaptable. In the same ways your body could ostensibly be in an infinite number of possible states, 100 degrees Celsius or as a liquid, there's only a few that let it to continue to live as a body. And that's actually how philosopher Gilles Deleuze articulated the problem of biological organisms. The problem of biological organisms for Deleuze was to how to continue living as a body. Remember Gibson, this means that which affordances we make use of, or avoid, or perceive, is a matter of whether or not they help us to continue living. These figurative little futures, the little future of eating that makes up an apple, is in some strong sense within us because eating is within us. Our apprehension of the future is constrained, in some real sense, by what's adaptable. If you could consciously think about exactly what things could do every time you interacted with them, if their little futures were vague or unintuitive, you would likely never do anything. See, we don't literally live in three-dimensional space, nor do we live in a world with a future. The sun doesn't rise tomorrow, because tomorrow isn't a place. The future is not a place. The future is a ghost, sometimes a friendly ghost, that haunts your mind and guides your hand. The future has always been already here. Let's end this introduction with a story. It's a story the architect of this project, Olivier Diens, told me about a year ago, and I want to share it before we introduce him. So the story begins in New York City, all right, and it's the 19th century. The population is skyrocketing, the city is booming, and everyone is getting around the same way on horseback or horse-pulled buggy or carts. The city planners were getting anxious because they realized that as the population grew, the number of horses would explode. And with horses came horse dung. They ran the numbers and were predicting a hygienic catastrophe dung up to people's knees, and all of the diseases that came with that. The city officials hire their best engineers, mathematicians, everything. They begin planning how to totally reinvent the sewer system to accommodate tons and tons of waste, when then suddenly...
motor vehicle. The car changed everything. And what's better, it doesn't poop either. See, what I get from that story is that most of the time, the future is counting how deep the dung will be. The anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss said that most people live in the world like bricoleurs, bricklayers. They have materials at hand, cultural, semantic materials at hand, and they elaborate them in predictable patterns. In other words, they live in cycles or loops, and their thinking has a predictable structure. It takes a genuine event, something truly special, to change the constraints that let us imagine in the first place to change our dimensions, our system of coordinates. Maybe it's the Copernican Revolution, or maybe it's the invention of the automobile, or the invention of the vaccine, or the discovery of relativity, or the invention of writing. Moments that cannot be imagined unless we imagine imagining differently. And now for the introduction. You'll hear about the history of Building 21, the history of the Radical Futures Project, as well as what we've done so far. Meet Olivier Dienz, hear about Noam Chomsky, and hopefully understand the vague ambitions of this radio program. So what you're listening to is a story about a very unique project which took place in Building 21, an organization at McGill University that's in Montreal, Canada, between summer 2019 and spring of 2020, at least so far. This is where I introduce you to the man who told me the story about New York City and the invention of the automobile. Let's hear Olivier Dienz introduce himself in an interview we had last summer with myself and my friend and colleague, uh, Rebecca Bresseau. So my name is Olivier Diens. I am right now my full professor in Department of Literature de Langue Française, Traduction et Création. The name changed uh, recently, and uh, it's funny because a friend of mine uh, recently said, you're a full professor. Do you guys have half professors at McGill? I mean, arguably, <laughs> yes, there are half, half professors at McGill. Okay, is this going to be <laughs> high? <or> <laughs> So uh, I used to be deputy provost for uh, student life and learning. That's how I came to McGill from Concordia University. Uh, my area of uh, specialization is uh, the impact of technology on representation and human, and on human beings. And I'm also very much interested in the future of education, the radical future of education. And uh, as an aside, because that's also part of what I do, uh, poetry is also something I'm really interested in that I do quite a bit of, and the, the, the sort of translation from poetry to a virtual world, and what does it mean when you translate, liberally translate a poem into a virtual world. So, in a nutshell, that's me. Olivier Dienz way back in the winter of 2018, when I was first introduced to McGill University's Building 21. Building 21 is named after MIT's Building 20, Building 20 was built so hastily during World War II to accommodate a flood of military research, it never even received a formal name. The structure was so ramshackle, academics were permitted to literally break down walls where they saw fit. An unprecedented collaboration in Building 20 would yield revolutionary research, 
including the incubation of Noam Chomsky's generative grammar. Building 20 closed in 1998, and so as well as aspiring to be its spiritual successor, Building 21 named itself after the 21st century. Building 21 is the brainchild of Olivier Dien's Anita Parmar and David Javi Johnson, who you'll hear from later, as well as a host of other staff and collaborators. Let's hear Olivier Dien's describe B21 in his own words. Uh, okay, so uh, when I when I was uh, deputy provo, and it's been it's been a sort of an obsession of mine for a long time, but it, it just uh, is sort of crystallizing. Deputy Pro in charge of student life and learning. So, the main question for me is: uh, Is our education system flexible, creative, uh, interesting enough to help young people, such as both of you, to address, solve uh, today's problems and tomorrow's problems, and also thrive in a, in a very difficult world that will become more and more complex and more and more challenging as the years go by. And when you look at uh, what the uh, outside world is doing, when I mean the outside world, outside of the walls of academia, if you look at uh, you know, GAFA, the Google, the Apple, uh, Facebook, and Amazons of this world, and you see what they do and the sort of the things they push forth, um, people like Elon Musk uh, and all of his projects, and you wonder, you know, are we providing something that's uh, interesting enough and really exciting enough and that addresses today's problems in our education system. So right now we're, you know, we're, we, uh, higher education, education in general uh, is, is doing pretty well because we have a monopoly. Uh, we, um, uh, we are the only ones providing uh, accreditations, diplomas, degrees, but these things can change, can change quite quickly. Uh, Kodak had his best year in uh, 1997. The, industry, the music industry with records and CDs at that point had its most productive and uh, best year they ever had in 2000, and these things changed almost overnight. So in a nutshell, I was wondering whether you know, our education system was, was, was doing the right thing or whether it was slowly dying without no one uh, realizing it. And I wanted to try something else. So I said, let's, uh, let's create something outside of the university walls, outside of its... Uh, a degree and credits and course structure because you know this is this is this has some pull and tends to pull things into a norm and whether we can try something uh, out there a bit crazy a bit a bit also um, a bit inspired by Google X and the idea of you know the moonshot and crazy ideas uh, that's where we are right now in this place where we're all trying to figure out what is the best way to learn? What's the most interesting and the most uh, exciting way to learn? In the prelude, we try to convey a very simple yet subtle idea that the future, most of the time for us, is a sort of necessary behavioral construct which becomes useful only insofar as it is heavily constrained and so is therefore instructive for our behavior. The result of this constraint is the production of futures that guide and regulate us. We cross the street because we expect a future in which cars obey traffic rules, for example. But as the story of the horse dung and the invention of the car reveals, we might run into a wicked problem. The means by which our worlds become navigable, those same means that give us a comprehensible future and orient us towards it, make it impossible much of the time 
to see truly radical alternatives. Radical alternatives which may be all too necessary. This was the fundamental goal of the Radical Futures Project, to examine what it might mean to think in terms of cars and not horse dung. Over the couple of years of Noan Olivier, landed on a two-word description that captures his general attitude. Olivier is a contrarian optimist, and until you've met one, you don't know how important they are to have around. He makes a point of rearranging the geometry of any situation, such that its edges seem a little less sharp. Again, the idea behind Radical Futures was to imagine cars rather than calculate horse dung. In other words, it was very optimistic. It was to retake agency over our imagining of the future. And this was to be a totally open process, involving poets, opera singers, professors, philosophers, authors, students, foreign correspondent journalists, and philanthropists. It didn't matter if your imagining the automobile was a piece of speculative fiction, or a painting, or whatever. The point was just to talk to people who were obsessed with what it might mean to do it. To do something truly radical. This would take various formats over the next six months. Multimedia arts projects, open discussion atelier, recorded interviews, and guest lectures. The point of this radio program is to tell the story of this past year. And to forecast its future to relive and recount the ways in which a small group of humans grappled with the reality of the future. For the first three or so months, the project was a process of extensively compiling reading material. Olivier and I would meet in a cafe across the street from Building 21 and read selections of articles and books. We'd read Kevin Kelly, Gibson, Wells... We dove into the depths of words. This is not a race against the machines. This is a Somewhere race is designed the just as the biosphere stands above the world of non-living matter. So an We emerged from the words with ideas, and by fall 2019, we were ready to begin experimenting.
Part 1, The Aporia of the Disco Igloo. In this section, you will hear about inverted time capsules, hierarchies of the imagination, and disco igloos. Let's take a listen to our interview with Ed Finn, professor at Arizona State University and founder of the Center for Science and the Imagination. We interviewed him in fall of 2019 to discuss his idea of how technological hierarchies of the imagination, as he calls them, are suppressing our creativity by effectively imagining for us. And then we'll hear some of his proposed solutions to that problem. His project was very near to our heart and helped frame our creative direction early on. There's something in your article about this tyranny of the average that maybe computers are pushing us towards, right? And in the article you say we need art to surprise us in order to blow up the world, to create fissures out of which the new can emerge. And you've talked and imagination is essentially that, right? It's pushing the boundaries and exploring the space of possibilities from different perspectives. But is that a, still possible? And how is that affected by common software, by applications that we all have and that gives us a view of the world that's similar for all of us from GPS to dating apps to listening to music. How is that new still possible and how is that push for imagination still possible? It's an excellent question and I think that the struggle that we are all contending with and you can imagine the Silicon Valley pyramid scheme as collecting not just tremendous amounts of money for a very small group of people, but also sort of reordering and creating a hierarchy of imagination where very few people make significant aesthetic and design choices that end up impacting millions or billions of others. And this seems sort of like an abstract question even 10 years ago, but today, you know, I, I, I don't even know. I think that last I checked, there were two and a half billion people using Facebook. So that's a world that has its own weather systems that has significant political and cultural impacts, as, of course, we've, we've been hearing about on the news for quite a while. So, you know, when you change the design of the like button or you, you know, change the, 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 the ways in which you can self-identify your gender on Facebook, this has a tremendous impact. And I think that the challenge is the whole premise of cloud-based, ubiquitous computing infrastructure of modern digital life, and it's worth, uh, you know, pointing out still that there is a tremendous digital divide and there are a lot of people who are not part of this connected world. But for, for those of us who are, you know, the whole uh, premise is abstraction and simplification. You push a button and something happens. And all of the other tasks and contextual background that used to be part of that task, like, you know, getting something delivered to your house the next day from Amazon, instead of figuring out where to go and going to a store and finding it in the store and maybe selecting from some options and purchasing it and bringing it home, you know, all of this is now offshore, as it were. It becomes other people's problems. But as I wrote about in my book, you know, all of that context doesn't go away. All of the problems don't go away. They just get sort of sucked up in this funnel and dumped onto other people who then have to suffer. And the problem with this, from an, you know, aside from the obvious sort of problems, labor and justice, the, the problem from an imagination perspective is that you're also letting other people imagine the world for you. You're letting other people write the menu of your day 
and you're just selecting from the dishes that they've prepared. And it's, uh, you know, th there's nothing intrinsically wrong with this. We're always going to engage with other people and ask them. We're going to celebrate artists. We're going to celebrate great newspapers and magazines. We depend on other people to help us shape our informational worldview. But as we automate more of this, we're increasingly building a world where even the people who design these systems are not thinking about them as aesthetic systems. And so they're not thinking about the, the cultural consequences, the social or ethical consequences of their systems. They're just designing, for example, YouTube uh, designed to maximize viewing. The goal of YouTube's Play Next algorithm was to get people to keep watching YouTube. So you start by watching a video about Donald Trump. And you know, five or 10 or 20 videos later, you're watching some ultra right-wing uh, neo-Nazi propaganda because the algorithm says, oh, if we just give you something a little more salacious, a little more tantalizing, a little more extreme, you'll, you'll keep watching because that's what the data shows. So this is, a, this is a problem. And it's hard to think of how you carve out that space, that rupture for imagination. And it requires, you know, there, there, there are many different strategies to explore. And, so, you know, some of these problems are old problems. They're not new problems. Artists have been looking for ways to disrupt accepted reality for, for centuries. But I think that the problem is more urgent now that we are empowering so many of these systems to make decisions about our lives, like who gets to be hired and fired, what information not just what you read from the menu, right, but that notion of writing the menu so that the whole periphery of the information you're even vaguely aware of, the horizon of your intellectual perspective, is determined by filtering and curating algorithms. I think it's certainly possible to create these kinds of disruptions, but the first step is to start to become literate, right, to become aware of and start to see how these systems are shaping our collective imaginaries. In the fall of 2019, our project had become a flurry of diverse activities. As well as conducting interviews with creators like Dr. Finn, we undertook a creative exercise that we took to calling Letters from the Future, a concept very close to the notion of world-building that Finn was getting at in the preceding clip. Rather than addressing the future from the present, the premise of these letters was to present a kind of inverted time capsule. We were opening the letter in the present moment, as if it were from the future, rather than opening it in the future, but addressed from the present moment. They were a special kind of speculative fiction and a fun writing exercise. The idea was conceived by Olivier, who's written more than a dozen books on the relationship uh, between the wet nurse of the future technology, and our modes of representation. These letters were written spontaneously by students, staff, guests, and colleagues. One letter explored a world in which the interpretations of text were no longer left to scholars, but rather to machines which produced all possible variations of the way a text could have been written, and looked for statistical patterns among infinite iterations. One letter explored how in a world in which the virtual afforded all pleasures, meaning became entangled with the act of refusal. One examined uh, the biosphere of ideas, the machinic dimension of cultural information. Another examined how a manifesto could be written for the university as singularity. The letters were broad-stroked and experimental, 
more atmospheric than articulated. They didn't so much talk about the future as express how it felt. You can feel their full versions on our website, building21.ca. In addition to these letters, we held a series of four public ateliers that featured discussions on specific themes. We asked whether algorithms were the new public intellectuals. We asked what human rights might look like in a post-human world. We asked why, in a state of surveillance, we might actually desire surveillance. These questions were interrogated by uh, the community of students and staff and colleagues, as well as some brilliant visiting professors. And that's when we met Jonathan Ledger. Ledger is an author, journalist, and philanthropist. He was a foreign correspondent in Africa for The Economist for over 20 years. He's a leading voice on technology and alternative economies, and is deeply involved in humanitarian efforts across Somalia, Uganda, Ethiopia, and, well, you get the picture. His new novel, Submergence, is currently being adapted to film, Ledger has spent his life imagining and working for the future. But I want you to listen to what happened when we asked him what we thought might have been an obvious question. Let's, let's play a little game. Let's say we're in 2050 or 2060 and 20, or 2070. And we're not only uh, surviving, but we are, and when I say we, it's both humans and the environment and all living beings, but not only surviving, but we are thriving. So what have we done right? Hmm. Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah, fantastic question. Yeah, what have we done right? Well, first of all, I should say that um, I'm definitely not a dystopian uh, thinker. I'm an I'm a really optimistic. I really think we can actually turn this around, um, provided we apply, you know, rigor and imagination. But one of the key things that we we have to do right, I think, the main thing that we will have achieved, if things go well, uh, will be to move entirely towards a more experiential way of living so that of course people still travel if they're on planes and, and so on and so forth but it's really uh, about the experiences that you accrue in your life and your not your material possessions and the implication of that would be to kill a whole branch of economics which is based on <laughs> you know gdp growth and again i would urge you to read a fast love Mill's book on growth, which really addresses this point very squarely, uh, which is, you know, if we are wedded politically, culturally, socially, towards a growth model, 
in a fixed biosphere, we are fated to mortally damage ourselves. Uh, so we have to uncouple from growth. So, you know, more experiential thinking, uh, uncoupling from growth, that's probably the key thing. As soon as it happened, we realized that this was a bit of a seminal moment in the project's development. There was so much significance in that pause, as if somehow the question, what does your future, a good future, look like, was so alien it resisted answering. This happened again when we met the speculative fiction author Alexander Weinstein. In mid-fall of 2019, he dropped by Building 21 to read from his new book, Universal Love, a collection of short stories that reads like Roald Dahl's Unexpected Tales meets Black Mirror. After his readings, we got a chance to speak with him. Listen to him describe the final story of his collection, Ice Age, where a post-apocalyptic society has returned us to a Neolithic society in a sort of naive harmony with nature, when suddenly technology is reintroduced. So the last story in the book, Ice Age, that's the last one. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of see that as, as, a, as a good connecting point here because, remind me, tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but uh, it's a post-apocalyptic setting. Mm-hmm. Um, people have returned to this more kind of intuitive, analog, nomadic, pastoral way of living that you're describing. That's right. Uh, and then we have this sort of, have, uh, the gods have gone crazy moment, right? Where someone appears with a tool and it implies that like the cycle is going to begin again. Exactly. So I'm just wondering, like, could you elaborate on that decisive moment? Because that seems to be the inceptive moment in this whole kind of uh, vision that you're describing. The moment in which a mediation with our environment and with each other is introduced and like what exactly that means. Yeah, so in Ice Age, you know, all of the technological critique has kind of gone because it all got wiped out and buried under the, the snow. And then the danger you know in there is that we have somebody in a double decker igloo who has figured out how mm-hmm. to burn his way down to the houses and exploit them and he's using up all of the remaining wood because the only wood is what pokes out of the top of of the ice and this was happening during occupy wall street so i was thinking a lot about the 99% and the 1% it was also happening there was Dakota Pipeline stuff happening as well. And so there's really this kind of, mm, I wanted to have it be a parable about consumerism, about capitalism, about really the, the single Decker Igloos, the regular folk, they're creating, even though they're in trouble, a community that shares, they might not like each other, but they have the disco Igloo, they get together, <laughs> they, you know, they have a pretty good, and the double-decker igloo, Phil, he, he introduces consumerism again. And so the ending, now, granted, he's probably saving them because they need the stuff from the houses eventually. But he's not giving it away, right? He's creating a market economy again. And so the communal is being threatened by the commercial. And I, and I think that is, in many ways, behind a lot of the stories where the our community, even though online, presents the opportunity for beautiful communities to flourish, the marketing always is behind it, or often behind it, exploiting that very community that it claims to be building. Weinstein's prose is compelling. 
It is hard not to grieve that which threatens the innocence and community in his Ice Age story. In my mind, the disco igloo is a very precise and interesting articulation of a paradox that manifests as the inherent tension we experience when considering the future. The future is a constant flow of differentiating change and ever-changing pressures. And in order to maintain what we value, our communities, identities, or otherwise, we must constantly reaccommodate our sacred spaces such that they may continue living as they are. What Weinstein's story reminds us of is that that sort of radical break, which in his story is a sort of Promethean original sin in the form of technological mediation and mercantilism, is both crucially necessary, but also inherently apocalyptic. In order for the world of Ice Age to continue existing, it can no longer do so as itself. To prevent the end of the world, the world must, in some sense, come to an end. But the question then becomes, what change cannot be tolerated? See, I think the question that we asked Ledger stunned him because it wasn't as simple as it seemed. We asked him to imagine a 2050 where we've done things right. And that's exactly as complicated as asking Alexander Weinstein whether the disco igloo is ultimately worth it, something that his story understands as a problem without offering a solution. It's asking someone what's worth having agency over, what's worth keeping around. To Dr. Finn's point, one must make fissures and break the world that constrains the horizon of imagination if we are to engage in the necessity of genuinely radical creativity. The violence of this fissuring is both terrifying and sublime, and that's a duality we explore in the next section of this broadcast. These first three interviews and the preceding interpretation have guided the Radical Futures project the question, what have we done right in a good future, is now one of our hallmark questions, which we pose to every guest. Each of them has their own disco igloo, their own paradox, their own story to tell. This marks the end of part one. By now I think you have a pretty good idea of the sort of activities that Radical Futures gets up to and its general philosophy the general problem it tries to tackle. All of the interviews which were sampled in this section and so far, as well as all of the letters to the future, are available in full on our website, which is again building21.ca. Stick around for the next section. <laughs>